Before we start the show, I want to tell you about Serve HQ. Every church leader knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is essential to successfully accomplishing your mission. But if you're like most leaders, you also know how tricky it can be to onboard and equip people for your team and find a time to meet and try to rally the people. But what if there was a resource to make it easier? Well, that's where I want to recommend to you Serve HQ. Serve HQ is simple video training courses that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can train using your own content or their video library. You can even automate next steps to onboard new people. Check it out at servehq.church and the link is always going to be in our show notes. That's servehq.church. It, it's recognizing that there's one hero in scripture and it's Jesus. And we want to exalt him and we want to preach him. And we know that we're going to stop. We know we need to correct each other. We need to listen to each other. Let's not be so dogmatic that we can't learn from each other because ultimately the one name we want people to leave with is the name of Jesus. That's what they need to remember. That's who they need to focus on. Jesus is perfect. He's the only hero in scripture and he should be the only hero in our lives and, and in our churches. Welcome to season nine of Word Made Digital. Welcome, my friends. My name is Joanna LaFleur. I'm your host. This is season nine, episode two. Today, we are talking to author with millions of books sold, Gary Thomas. You've probably read some of his books. You've probably heard the ideas from some of his books, even if you haven't read them. Can't wait to get this conversation to you. Thank you so much to Serve HQ. Train your ministry volunteers, leaders, and new members online fast and easy with Serve HQ and to Compassion Canada. They're lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name. And Scripture Untangled, a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, would love you to check out. They are making this podcast possible, making it come into your ears. And hey, if you want to get more resources from them, the links are going to be down in the show notes, as well as a link to our YouTube channel, our tutorials, our back catalog of podcasts. We have now eight full seasons. Here we come, season nine, all kinds of conversations to resource and equip you as you communicate the best news in the world. So let me tell you a little bit about Gary Thomas before we dive into the conversation today. You may know him from his book, Sacred Pathways or Sacred Marriage. He's a pastor, he's a best-selling author, an international speaker whose ministry brings people closer to Christ and closer to others. He unites the study of scripture, church history, and the Christian classics to foster spiritual growth and deepen relationships within the Christian community. I think you're going to love this conversation with Gary as the heart of a pastor and insights that I don't think that you've heard before. So please enjoy the conversation with Pastor Gary Thomas. Gary Thomas, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really glad to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Joanna. I'm delighted to be here. Now, for those who don't know you, we'd love if you could just please introduce yourself to us and we'll dive in from there. Yeah, uh, I'm a, a writer and teacher. I've been doing books for a couple decades on my own. I'm on the teaching team. Recently moved here to uh, Highlands Ranch, Colorado, which is just below Denver at Cherry Hills Community Church. So I spend a lot. I'm an empty nester. My wife and I have been married 38 years. We have three adult children and two grandchildren. So write books and teach and love and worship Jesus. Well, and when you say that you write books, you are, are really sort of a, a prolific writer of books. 
Um, um, maybe let's just start there. I think some people might be interested. What was your first book? How did you get into writing and realize yeah. this isn't just a hobby for me? This is actually something more. Well, kind of out of desperation. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you remember, you might be too young to remember Jean Al. She she was a very famous novelist. She wrote a trilogy and then I didn't hardly ever hear from her. She wrote like Clan of the Cave Bear or something trilogy or something years, decades ago. And, and she said something that hit me at the time. I hadn't been published. The writers who make it aren't the ones who want to. They're the ones who need to. They could be so frustrating and so difficult. If you don't feel like you need to, you're going to give up. And for me, Joanna, I'm a man of very limited gifts. I have no <laughs> mechanical ability. Love to watch sports, but nobody would pay me to play sports. I don't like to be in charge of people, so I don't want to be a manager. I'm not very good with numbers. I am more grateful than anyone could know that God has let this writing and speaking thing work out because it's just it's what I feel like I was created to do. It's what I love to do. I've loved Jesus. I mean, I... I just feel blessed that God chose me very early on. I'm third of four kids, often didn't feel like I necessarily fit in my family. And it seems like Jesus just met that need and I had a great pastor. That's why I'm just so big on, I'll never be a senior pastor, but I'm so grateful for those that fulfill that role. Um, and his wife in particular, really, God just used that couple to bring me in. So I really don't have a conscious life apart from Jesus. I've wanted to serve Jesus my whole life and um, and this worked out. So my first book, though, was called uh, Seeking the Face of God. It's since been released as Thirsting for God, and it's on the Christian classics. Before I wrote my own books, I, I really wanted to sort of summarize the great spiritual classics because they disagree on so many points of hmm. what theologians would call systematic theology. But when it came to spirituality, loving God, the dark night of the soul, how you shape yourself, hearing God, all of those things, temptation and pride and all that, uh, it was amazing how much a medieval monk or nun would have with a third or fourth century early church father or an 18th century Anglican. Or It, it was just amazing. And so I just want to say, well, this is what the church has, has taught. Um, and it was sort of through a back door. There's a wonderful woman named Janet Toma who had launched all of the recovery books back in the late 80s. The Minners Meyer Clinics, older listeners will, will remember all of these. And she felt like it had run its course. She told me, Gary, they're writing recovery books for your dog and your cat and your parakeet. It's become ridiculous. <laughs> you know, she my dog might need one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But, but, but she's just saying, so Lord, what's next? And she really felt like it was spiritual formation and going back to the classics. And so this book came to her notice and she was so gracious with me and helpful with me. This very experienced editor who had her own imprint knowing this isn't, wasn't a book that would be a bestseller. I, I had no platform. I was in my early 30s, no, nothing famous about me, no big church that I was a part of that would do it. But she really gave me a start and, and helped me on. Um, and then came Sacred Pathways, which I know you're familiar with, and it just kind of went on from there. So, you know, about, yeah. Wow. Well, I love that. I, I love this description as I'm getting to know you as you speak. Um, just And even just this illustration of it was a person who gave you a chance yeah. um, and maybe saw something. I mean, 
saw more in you maybe than you saw in yourself at the moment, had some experience, could say, how do we get this this young writer out into the world? Um, but in many ways, you know, your writing um, is very, um, th- like as you talk about um, the spiritual disciplines and you're, t- you're referencing monks and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, ancient, you know, ancient right. practices of dealing with the dark night of the soul, etc., um, that's, that's very trendy right now, if I may use that word, well, <laughs> but I, my sense is, my sense is that you weren't writing, following any trends. What I mean is that when you were starting to write about these issues, you saw something that these busy, um, sort of churches that were maybe looking at business models and marketing and sales gurus for advice, um, they weren't leaning into this stuff. And so, uh, Tell me, tell me about that. Why were you writing about this? It, it was so untrendy. It really got my publisher nervous, which is why they were <laughs> elated when uh, J.I. Packer agreed to endorse the book. He had been mm. my mentor at uh, Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, because they, they felt like quoting Eastern Orthodox people and Roman Catholics and even people like Blaise Pascal that was sort of in between um, – could be considered, and it it did, it caused some pushback. I had some people Mm. that really attacked me. I thought, I'm nobody, why are you attacking me? But for instance, when I talked about centering prayer in sacred pathways from a a mainstay of Eastern Orthodox spirituality, and keep in mind, if somebody hasn't read Sacred Pathways, it's not a book of prescriptions. It's a book of descriptions. This is how these people reach God. This is how these people grow in prayer. I'm not telling anybody to do anything. It's really a book of invitations. These are how people have learned to draw near to God and to feed their souls and whatnot. And and they were saying, if I wouldn't renounce this book and this practice of centering prayer, that they would, you know, attack me as new age theology, which is so far from who I am. They said mm. it's transcendental meditation. And I said, you know, this... This was launched about 1,500 years before California was a state. <laughs> they, they, they were just frankly so ignorant of it, and and they were so afraid because there is a difference in Eastern Orthodoxy. In Eastern Orthodoxy, it's rooted in the experience of God. They value being with the Lord. When they would choose early Orthodox priests, it wouldn't be based on degrees necessarily because they said anybody can go to school and did a, get a degree. Is this person humble? They said that can't be faked. If you're pers- and, and so they would have these spiritual practices like the Jesus prayer to root you in the presence of God because they so valued living in the presence of God. They thought a spiritual discipline that would help you stay there was worthy in and of itself. But some in the West suspect that and are suspicious of it, and they 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 take these corrupted forms of meditation and infuse it into that must be what the Eastern Orthodox Church is talking about. And I told this group that through the years has put out press releases on me or whatnot or put me on lists. I I just, I'm not going to throw the entire Eastern Orthodox Church under the bus because you have a problem with that. I, I just don't believe it's true that God launched his church and after Augustine sort of went to sleep until John Calvin and Martin Luther came along, there's over a century there where God was moving in that church. And I'm, I'm not Eastern Orthodox, uh, but I really respect their spirituality and much. And I've learned much 
from many of their writers. They have some revered classics. So, yeah, it, it not only was it not trendy, it was sort of considered anti. Um, well, it was it was it was problematic. But it's interesting to huh. see it coming back around uh, these days. Yeah, but I, I got into it. Long answer to your question is. I just had great teachers. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so blessed. And you kind of hit on it, Joanna. I had a fifth grade teacher that turned me into C.S. Lewis. I had a college pastor who taught me about Brother Lawrence and Henry Nowen. And then I went to Regent College, which was a hotbed of the Christian classics with Jim Houston and J.I. Packer talking about the Puritans and, and reading the Christian classics just became a part of my life. I'll, I'll never forget a lecture where James Houston, just still alive, 99 years old and still going, um, said, I want each one of you to read Teresa of Avila. And he goes, if you ask why, the reason is clear. She's a woman. Most of you are men. She lived in Spain. Most of you are from North America. She lived in a different century. She came from a different tradition. She will ask questions that you would never even think to ask. And if you want to broaden your understanding of how God works with us, you need to read her. And she expanded my view of prayer exponentially. And so wow. I don't agree with all of the writers that I quote, but I'm, I'm thankful I'm not a systematic theologian who has to tell you what books not to read. I'm more than saying, hey, read this. There are a few bones to spit out, but you're going to find a lot of meat in here if you take the time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Gary, I am loving this conversation already. I'm delighted about where it's been going. When you mentioned C.S. Lewis and as you were speaking, I thought of this phrase I've taken from him called chronological snobbery. Yes. Are you familiar with this? Yes, yes. This idea that, of course, what is most recent or what's the newest, shiniest thing is somehow better than the thing that preceded it, yeah. that the new thing is better than the old thing. And that just simply can't be true. We shouldn't be so snobby about the chronology, the ordering of things, that there are some things that maybe people figured out a thousand years ago that we have forgotten and should go back to. I mean, Joanne, just think, you read the headlines, you read the blog posts, how would the church have spared itself some great pain and unfortunate publicity if it stressed humility as much as degrees, mm. just that one difference between the East and the West. Um, and I, I think there are things we can learn. Now, there's a reason I'm where I am, but that doesn't mean that I, you know, I tend to be more of an ecumenical guy uh, on the basics. Mm. Well, the, the church I'm part of now is EPC, which has the, the phrase in the essentials, um, unity and non-essentials charity. And and I think that's where I, I land. Right. And so you're not just in Colorado for good skiing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually ski. I may have to oh, take it out. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful here. Uh, yeah. This has been the yeah. most incredible summer. Uh, it really wow. has been amazing. Well, the winter is coming, but I'm that's sure the I've summers <laughs> are just as beautiful. Now, you know, in this conversation we're having, of course, I... I love this, that you you were fascinated by, intrigued to pursue an understanding of what might be known from another perspective, whether that's, as you said, a woman from Spain compared to a man from America or, you know, different times, places. Um, what are What are some of the things that you think are, maybe it's obvious, but what are some of the things that you think are lost 
when you're only looking from your own denominational view or um, or even moment in history uh, when you're thinking about uh, the spiritual life? Well, it, it, look, reading the classics has just been life-giving for me. I, I keep talking about humility, but Joanna, I grew up in an age. I'm 60, so that kind of places people where it seemed to me like the two sins were sexual sin and substance abuse, you know, getting drunk or pot or something like, like that. And I read the Christian classics and they stressed how pride was the chief sin and queen mm. and, and, and humility was the queen of the virtues. And, and it made a huge difference on how I viewed myself and, and what I want to be and how I want to grow and what I think it means to be, um, a mature believer. And then just the other things like the orthodox practice of emphasizing experience over just knowledge. That doesn't mean I discount knowledge. I think knowledge is crucial. I think if you're going to teach, I think master's level study is is recommended. I, I would really encourage people to consider that, but not to grow out of that. Um, and, and here's the thing I love. Um, I love to read John Wesley. And I love to read John Calvin. Now, those that are theologically astute know that they're coming from two different perspectives. But I think John Wesley challenges me on a whole different level. He talked about Christian perfection. And that word just makes people I, I, furious today. Yes. And I'm not sure is a good word because Wesley spent most of his career trying to redefine perfection to mean what it doesn't really mean. But but here's what I love, Joanna, when you read his actual book on it, he says, here's what I mean by perfection. I don't want pride to determine how I treat people. I don't want covetousness to determine how I view possessions and my money. I don't want lust to determine how I treat somebody of the opposite gender. He goes, is that so wrong? And he goes, and why do I want a little, little bit of sin in my life? I mean, I pray for God's provision. I pray for God's blessing in my ministry. Why wouldn't I pray for God to refine my character? And if I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, why wouldn't I expect that he could deliver me from these things? That challenges me. Uh, I, I love that. I think he's got some great works. Now I'm reading John Calvin and I'm so inspired. Now, when he gets into the free will and he takes it to a place, I just can't follow him there. I'm not mm -hmm. a five pointer. I mean, I just as a pastor, when he comes down to saying basically everything that happens is because of God's described will. There are certain pastoral situations. I, I'm not going to tell a woman that was abused by her husband or raped by a stranger. Or, I mean, I, I just yeah. think it, it takes it to a place that I respect Calvin. I just don't know how it gets, even though my mentor, J.I. Packer, was very much a Calvinist. And I respect him and I love his books and I learn from him. I've just felt the freedom to say on some of these issues I don't know. <laughs> there are a few areas I really want to speak about. I might be wrong. And I think it comes from wanting to value humility. Here's what it seems like to me. You might have a disagreement, but from reading these classics and reading scripture, this is what it seems like to me is the best way for us to look at this, but not have to choose sides, not have to say right. they're an enemy. You can't read them at all or they're a friend. You should accept everything they say um, because I, I, I think – Politically, that's been a real problem for us. And I think theologically, it's been a real problem for us. 
pausing the conversation with Gary Thomas because the Bible can feel overwhelming, confusing, or hard to believe. But Scripture Untangled, a new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, brings you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers to help you be inspired to dive into the Bible and understand it. You can listen for free and subscribe to Scripture Untangled on your preferred podcast app or wherever you're listening to this podcast. The links will be down in the show notes. Well, Gary, I appreciate this because, of course, as soon as you talk about this, reading people you may not agree with, yet you can glean something from. Yes. Um, Considering ideas that may contradict your own ideas and wrestling through, does it affirm what you believe or does it change what you believe? Uh, These are not things that most people do. Um, you know, and yet I see how even in our, you know, my exposure to your work and in our conversation here, how it shapes your character, how you're talking about how it has shaped you as a man over decades um, to do that kind of work. But of course, we're in an incredibly divisive time. Yeah. Um, you know, there's murmurs, you know, in the news, there's these f- fringe groups, albeit fringe groups that are talking about things like a civil war. Um, it is it is something that has happened before, but nothing we want to see happen again. These divisive times where there must be some level of truth on both sides and no one's listening to the other and the camps are just digging in deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and you write about this on the microcosm that is a marriage. <laughs> but I think what you're talking oh. about is a principle in society. So, you know, if I may, I'm extrapolating it much farther than marriages into the world that we live in. Well, here's what I love. And we can slip into marriage from this, but but here's what changed my view of doing theology and church life and teaching. I think the most influential mentor in my life was Dr. Klaus Botmuel. He should be famous. Not a lot of people know him. He died very young. He's 58 or 59, died of cancer. He had been Karl Barth's teaching assistant, where he inspired me as he was such a scholar. He would tear people apart in a seminar if their research was shoddy. But he was open to the work of the Holy Spirit. He'd say, let's listen to God together. And he would expect God to speak. And I'd never met somebody who was so alive spiritually that was so astute academically. Hmm. And I remember he told me he was a Lutheran. So he was there with um, infant baptism. He said, Gary, I believe the church is richer for having both because infant baptism speaks of God's covenant promise. A believer's baptism speaks of our need to respond. He goes, what if the church is richer for having both expressions? And Hmm. the first time this very esteemed academic, I could say, oh, I can go with that. Now, I think churches have to pick. Some churches might say, well, we're going to go here, we're going to go there. But we don't have to say, and a pox be on your house if you disagree with us. Right. And certainly with a lot of marital issues, you get into gender roles or whatnot. I think, look, as a church, you see the writings of Paul. You know how they've been interpreted historically. I think you should lead your church in a way that is faithful and surrendered to God. But then don't tell every other church that disagrees that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're demonic for doing so. Can't we just say, mm-hmm. this is how we read it. We're not going to fight you, but we think we need to have to be faithful to what happens. My my wife had a brilliant take over COVID, which was a very divisive issue. She goes, a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about COVID and they're very confident in those. 
and, and what she meant, some everyone said, became a scientist, right? <laughs> well, and, but <laughs> what she said expert. is some people would keep their churches closed because they said, because we love our neighbor, as if those who opened them up didn't. And others would say, well, we want to open our churches because we think the church matters, as if those who close their churches don't think the church matters. I'm saying yeah. there's a way to disagree without slamming the parts of the church that disagree with you. Mm. So, <laughs> Gary Thomas for president. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> I'm just teasing. But I mean, this is so real in, in so many parts of it's in our lives, it's in our families, it's in our marriages, it's in our workplaces. Um, I mean, just even on as someone who's been on a church staff, you know, you can disagree within the church on the staff team about, uh, uh, you know, the implications of a theological decision. Uh, you know, Gary, where do where do we start? <laughs> where do we start with hearing each other better? Well, I, I think we just need to have empathy. I, I did a sermon a few weeks ago. If, if people want to go chcc.org, it's Cherry Hills. It was on. It was called "Are You a Sun or a Volcano?" Hmm. And I, I talked about how most people, when they talk about Paul, they go to gender issues. They go to sexual issues. They, and I said, you know what? When Paul lists in most of his epistles what it means to be holy, I never hear sermons on that. And it's like Colossians 3.8. Take off anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language and lying, and put on Colossians 3.11 and 12, compassion, kindness, patience, gentleness. And I, I show how in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, I mean, in most of his epistles, he says, we treat each other with compassion. We're patient. We're long-suffering. We're kind. We're encouraging. We don't quarrel with each other. Um, and other, uh, James does that as well. I was just reading that this morning about not being divisive, not slandering each other. And, and there is a self-righteous spirit today, self-proclaimed prophets mm -hmm. that just slander each other. They misrepresent each other. They attack each other. And they've gotten a following doing that. And I think it's so offensive to the spirit of the gospel when Paul says, I should be marked by compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, and love. And, and so I, I think we just go to stop selectively reading Paul. Let him emphasize what he emphasizes. And he emphasizes holiness by the way we treat people who disagree with us and by the way we treat people who sin. Even if somebody is sinning, I'm not saying we can't call out sin. We should call out sin. But when we do, Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if someone among you sins, those of you who are spiritual, which is a euphemism for mature, should restore him gently. Mm. And, and, and so it's, it's clear. If we want to let, to rightly read Paul, we've got to let Paul emphasize what he emphasizes. And he emphasizes the way we treat each other, those we disagree and those we sin with. So people might be right in their theology, but if they're wrong in their practice, they aren't representing Jesus. Right. It's the, I can do all these great things, but without love, I am yes. a clanging well, symbol. Thank you for bringing in that passage. That's a key. Yeah. I should have mentioned that first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a summary of what you're trying yes. to describe. Um, you can know all this stuff. You can have all, and I think that's, it's very true in, in, you know, as you talk about the, 
the you have all these accolades or education or you have this amazing communication ability. You seem like charis- charismatic. I don't mean spiritually charismatic, like a charismatic personality. Um, so we're going to make you the leader of this movement. And, you know, but what about the fruit of the spirits evidence in this person's life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, we seem to elevate our leaders in a very similar way to the world's way of choosing its leaders. But you know, the Bible doesn't, that's what's amazing to me. Paul says to Timothy, elders who serve well are worthy of double honor. And then says, but if one sins and doesn't repent, here's how you deal with it. So yeah. he, he knows there's going to be that. James 3, 2, speaking of teachers, we all stumble in many ways. And I think the challenge, Joanna, is that people have taken the passage, elders should be above reproach. And some have translated that elders should be perfect. And not just now, but when they were 20 <laughs> and when they were 30 and the first five years when they were figuring out how to lead a church. Or, or when right. she wrote her first book. And and it, it's just like, at some point, I'm like, no, above reproach can't mean perfect if you read James 3, 2 and, and others. That, now, look, we should call out abuse. We should call out predatory pastors. Obviously, I'm not talking about that. But um, we do set people up. And, I, and I, <laughs> I love this about Calvin, okay? I just said I don't go with him on free will. But he just said... I have no patience for those who make these super saints who don't realize they need to be rescued from their sin every day. Hmm. He he talked about how some people think there'll be a point when you don't have concupiscence. That's the ancient word for lust. He goes, no, you're going to deal with it. You can be successful. But he goes, those people who say these super saints, that's never an issue or never been an issue. He goes, let's not be silly. That's not the case. And so um, it's recognizing that there's one hero in scripture and it's Jesus and we want to exalt him and we want to preach him and we know that we're going to stump we know we need to correct each other we need to listen to each other let's not be so dogmatic that we can't learn from each other because ultimately the one name we want people to leave with is the name of Jesus that's what they need to remember that's who they need to focus on Jesus is perfect he's the only hero in scripture and he should be the only hero in our lives and and in our churches. And and it's one of the reasons that drew me to Cherry Hills Community Church, the senior pastor here, much younger than me, but a vision for team teaching. He said, I'm not going to build a church on me. I want the church to be one that, that lifts up the name of Jesus. And there's not one particular person. There's no name outside this church. Uh, the, the name that we lift up is Jesus. And I'm not knocking those that put the name on it again. Sure. But it is... It is the challenge, isn't it, of when you're talking about digging up things from when you were in your 20s and now you're in your 40s or 50s or whatever it may be. Um, well, the internet, things don't die. In the yeah. internet graveyard, you know, you can pull up a thing someone thought said did now, almost 20 years ago even. And then in the same way, <laughs> uh, you know, just this idea of the the, the dynamic of, it's not about the person, but then each individual has their own social media platform. And so to what degree do you use that uh, to bring truth and encouragement to people? And in what ways is that then suddenly just more of you and less of Jesus out in the world? It's a huge challenge. It really is. 
and there's not a lot of grace. And I think some have capitalized on realizing they can build a following on making people angry. Uh, anger is a motivating force. Uh, I've just found I want to live a life of encouragement. I, in my Twitter and Facebook feed, I want to encourage people to read a book. I've got one coming out this week. Hey, if you haven't read Sherry Harney's Praying With Your Eyes Wide Open, I think it's one of the best contemporary books on prayer. I was thrilled. Somebody said, hey, I just picked up G.I. Um, Packer's Concise Theology because you mentioned it. And uh, look, I, I know some people feel called to tell you what books not to read. Uh, my calling is just to open people's eyes up to books I think you should read. Not suggesting that I agree with every sentence in every paragraph or every other book they've ever read. I, I had some people attack <laughs> when Sacred Marriage came out. Not because of anything that was said in the book I quoted was a problem, but there was another book this author had said something that they had a problem with. And I, I just mm. said, to, I'm going to be honest with you. When I quote an author, I don't read every book they've ever written. <laughs> when I quote an author, yeah. I'm re interacting with that sentence that I quote. And I, I think one of the best books on spiritual combat is written by Lorenzo Scopoli several hundred years ago. I, I think his insight into spiritual combat, his understanding is phenomenal. And then he ends every chapter with a prayer to Mary. Okay. Mm. I have so many problems with that. So am I going to say, <laughs> okay, forget the book. There's nothing I can learn there. When I've learned so much, okay. I'm just leaving that in God's hands. Um, yeah. Read that book. You can skip over the prayers to Mary. Well, and as you talk about books, obviously your latest book, Making Your Marriage a Fortress, yes. you've written on marriage before, you've written yes. on relationships. I do want to dive a little more into, into the idea of the sacred pathways before we end our conversation today. But uh, like why this book now, I think is the most prominent question I have because yeah. you've written on the topic of marriage before. So why this book? What is it that this is adding to the ideas you've already written yeah. um, that we I, haven't seen before? I kind of did with contemporary couples what I did with the ancients with early writing on spiritual formation. I was at a conference, Joanna, where um, couples just began to share with me their stories. A woman who has constant seizures, she can have 10 a day. Wow. If the light isn't right, if she eats the wrong food, if the worship wrong kind of music with lights or something that can send her into a seizure. Yeah. Another couple where they had adopted a child, have five children, two of them have autism. And the child that they just adopted, they found out is not developing appropriately and will be physically dependent on them for their entire lives. Another couple who have been faithfully serving the Lord in ministry and churches, financially just really struck by a lot of things with the economy and other churches having to downsize over COVID and whatnot. So they, they got this really small condo that they said would hold them over. And they now realize it's probably going to be their retirement home. Oh, mm, and wow. they have a daughter who has, um, who's bipolar. So I, I, I could go yeah, on and on. <laughs> Another lot. husband who talked to me, um, whose wife has been depressed, clinically depressed for four years. So she wants nothing to do with God because she's bitter at God. Why does God give me this brain? She's got a certain issue going on where she doesn't have any other friends because nobody wants to be around her. So he is her only support. He has to do more physical labor. And, he, you know, I could pray for him. I could encourage him. I could tell him this is what. And then I, I left Joanna because I had to catch a flight. 
and he was barely holding it in. And before the door closed, he broke out into sobs. This is a heroic man. He wants to be faithful to his wife. He wants to be there for his kids. He wants to love the Lord. Joanna, these things aren't going to be fixed. It's not like you can tell these couples, hang on. And and so Making Your Marriage a a Fortress is really a book about living in the real world where life seems to tear you apart. How do you grow closer as a couple? I, I talked to a couple where the wife married the husband. She came from a dysfunctional background. She wanted a strong husband who would protect her, and he was huge. He could bench press 400 pounds. He was diagnosed with MS three years into their marriage. He's been in a scooter for years. Um, I talked to couples that have been through financial travails. One, the wife was unfaithful. Um, what happened when COVID hit? So many stories of things that just, a couple that lost their only child, not just a child, their only child. All of these issues. And I was looking for couples, not just that had bad things happen to them. That's a memoir. I needed wise couples. What did you learn? What did you do wrong? And they shared, well, I wish you wouldn't have done that, but this is what we learned. And then what blew me away at the end, they all had the same testimony where they basically said, I would never have chosen to go through this, but I can say in retrospect, I'm kind of glad I did and that we love each other more. We're closer to God than we've ever been. And they said some things that just blew me away. I've been able to say what I could say about marriage in previous books. But this is where I go to these couples because I think every couple has a chapter. (laughs) What have you learned? How did God help you grow? How did you face this? What can we take away? And so this every book has building your fortress takeaways where I've got like 12 or 13 insights that these couples gave me that I was just amazed and humbled by. And I'm just so eager to get it out there because if couples may not be facing the same issues these couples face, but the principles are there. And the reality is this is a deeply fallen world. Everybody's going to have their storm. How do you make your house a fortress in advance of the storm rather than being overwhelmed and suddenly say, oh, no, what are we going to do now? I want to pause the conversation with Gary Thomas one more time because we're talking about transformation in many ways in this conversation. And it can feel like a buzzword these days, but what does transformation, what does spiritual vitality even look like? How does that happen in a person? We can see this transformation so evident in the stories of former Compassion-sponsored kids that's graduates or alumni of the program who are now adults and telling their stories of how sponsorship impacted them. Like Eric, who grew up in the program in Uganda, Uganda. When Compassion found Eric, he had just become a fatherless child. His mother's family, that is the widow's family, was going to take the wealth, anything that was left in the family, and they had nothing. He said he considered himself a nobody. He had nothing. And then he received news that somebody was coming, that someone is going to have life-changing effect in his life and in his family. The evidence of this is so clear because he and his compassion sponsor, Dorothy, they're still in touch today, even though he's now an alumni of the program. Child sponsorship transforms lives. And you can find Eric's full story and learn more about child sponsorship at compassion.ca slash if dash only. And the link will be down in the show notes. Okay, back to the conversation with Gary Thomas. Right. Oh, I love this because of course, as you're describing, it's not just one 
attack, if you, if I can, using the metaphor of the fortress, it's not an attack uh, on one part of the castle and, you know, everything else is fine. It's like, it's coming from all sides. The moat has been breached. Uh, you're getting it from north, south, east, west. These are the stories you're describing. And I think a lot of people feel that way. It's, if it was just one thing, like a financial thing, but no, it's also the extended family and it's the in-laws and it's a health thing and it's uh, finances and it's a troubled child and it goes on and on and on. Uh, you know, what is something that people can do when I think people who are listening, is there some kind of an action that they can take to strengthen their marriage? Yeah, this is going to sound like a cliche, but, but this, it's not a cliche when it's worked for so many couples. There are two things, value the presence and favor of God. Um, when you let difficulties cause bitterness between you and God, you've removed the lifeline <laughs> It's like cutting your lifeline that will help you breathe to get out of it. Often, often our response creates bigger problems. Stacy, whose husband had MS, just blew me away when she said, I realize in retrospect, my fear about living with MS did more damage to my family than the MS did to my family. Mm-hmm. And then they talked about the lessons they've learned. And Joanne, nobody going through these things gives these pat answers. Oh, in the end, yes, thank you, God, for MS. They're not silly, sentimental thoughts like that. They've faced this head on, and they've realized how God has used it, and they found God to be that refuge in the storm. Uh, The couple that lost their only child, this blew me away. Because how do you face that? They they had a life of faith. And and, and Janelle looked at me, and she said, Gary— God didn't just call Garrett from something. That's the name of their son who died. He called Garrett to something. She goes, today, he is perfectly worshiping God. He is doing exactly what God created him to do. She goes, my friend's kids, you know, some are getting in trouble with alcohol. Some are going through a divorce. Some are just having bad relationships with their in-laws and whatnot. I don't have any of those problems. I know my son, though I can't talk to him. He is perfectly serving God, and that gives me so much joy. And he's going to be there when I go into eternity. He's going to tell me where everything is. And I, I mean, the hope of heaven for her is real and powerful. And she had to wrestle through God. How could you let this happen? Why did this happen? And she had to learn how she and her husband had to grieve in different ways. When you go through a crisis as a marital couple, the couples don't need the same prescription. Sometimes it's different for her than it was for her husband. And they had to learn how to let each other grieve. Daryl had to learn how to deal with his MS as Stacy had to learn how to deal with his MS. But it was different spiritually and emotionally and relationally. And so you want to keep that together with the Lord. The second thing that's a cliche is while this is trying to pull you apart, draw closer together, if you let this rip apart your marriage, your marriage becomes your biggest problem. Uh, they would all say it's terrible having to go through these awful things, but it would be worse to do it on my own. At right. least we have each other. And I think most people would say, okay, you're going to have to carry this load, but would you rather carry it with your spouse or would you rather it pull you apart and now you have to do it on your own? And so emotional connection is a big thing that we talk about. I get into the work of Dr.'s Heart and Dr. Sharon May. It's actually a father-daughter team, so it was kind of fun reading oh, their book. Oh, interesting. But, I didn't realize that they were father-daughter. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, and so, but they talk about the need to stay connected. And so the same things that when they go rip you apart, when you recognize them, they can help you come back together and rebuild your marriage. Because I don't want anybody to have to face this tough world alone. Ecclesiastes said it's tough if one falls and there's not someone else to pick them up. But when you're there together as a couple, you can go further and life is better. And so, no, the world's not going to be fair, but face the unfair world together. Here's how these couples did it. They so inspired me, Joanna. I think that's what makes this book different. It really is based on the wisdom I gleaned from other couples. I throw in a few things that I get from my own scriptural study, but but it would be nothing. It would be a 10-page book if it was just me. <laughs> Gary, I love that. And, you know, I, I hear even just your passion. I love that if you're excited about it, it's coming through in the pages. Um, and it's a, it's a topic that just more than ever, you know, it's it's... There's so much up against having a long-term successful relationship um, and certainly more than ever in, in this, the, the world of digital things where you can find someone new, the flavor of the week. I just was, was listening to the 10 years of Tinder, you know, the dating app Tinder, 10 years on what has Tinder done to dating. And they talk about online dating as a similar watershed moment like birth control gave the sexual revolution wow. that that these online dating apps and the ability to make new connections and have new partners or just how do you settle with one if there might be another one around the corner you know there might be something better if i just swipe a few more times through this mm -hmm. program uh you know it's it's significant in terms of just there's so much up against um a married couple and, joanna i just think god's way is best and look, I've worked with a lot of couples. I believe one person can tear a marriage apart. I believe if there's abuse, a woman needs to get safe and there's a place for divorce. I mean, Jesus gives an option for divorce. We can't take that away. But having said that, at the end of my life, I want to be able to look back and say, okay, we went through this, this, and this, but my wife and I faced that together. I think most people probably want that. And mm -hmm. again, one partner can torpedo that. So I have no judgment in that regard. I've seen one person destroy a marriage. But this is for those couples that say, yeah, we want to go through this together. At the end of life, we want to say we were arm in arm. We were hand in hand. Sometimes we didn't like each other very much, but we learned to walk through this. We've stayed together. We've grown through it. And that's our testimony. And I'm my wife and I are 38 years in, and uh, we'll awesome. see. My dad's 95 awesome. years old, so and, and Lisa's grandmothers lived to be 98 and 100, so we may have more years wow. ahead. Who knows? Wow. Isn't that amazing? Well, you know, I want to shift gears before we go. I mean, it's a shifting of gears in some senses, but it all is connected. Sacred Pathways is a book that has meant a lot to me personally, which is why I really feel just an honor to talk to you about it and, and hear from the author this. So, um, and it's interesting, even just before we hit the record, this idea of it's in my mind, it seems like a more popular book than, than you've said it actually is and that because people reference it, but maybe not a lot of people have read it. So can you tell us a little bit about this yeah. book? And well, what it has opened up for people. It, it's been ripped. It may be the most ripped off book in Christendom. <laughs> the publicist <laughs> of that book was at a church where the pastor preached all nine of the pathways. He sent out, um, he had a sheet that literally quoted from the book word for word. 
And she went up to him and she says, I'm thrilled that you did this sermon. But usually when you do that, you might want to quote the author. And he goes, what are you talking about? She goes, well, it's Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. He goes, no, I got it from my pastor at the previous church. So <laughs> it's, it, it's one. I'm, but look, I'm, I'm not going to. It's sold over, I think, over 120,000 copies now. But, but slowly yeah. through the years, it's just a lot of national leaders have mentioned it. Rick Warren, Andy Stanley, John Ortberg. Bill Hyples and, and, and some others. And basically it's recognizing nine different pathways, nine different windows through which people see the Lord. I believe we were created to worship God, to be in a relationship with God, but he doesn't use a cookie cutter when he makes us. So there are the naturalists who just pray better when they get outside and they're surrounded by what God has made. There are the sensates where the five senses are really ways to open them up. They, they, they like the visual arts. Music really matters to them, maybe even what they smell. And so when you teach them to pray by closing their eyes and bowing their head, it, it'll put them to sleep. And it's not their fault. They're, they're the activists who are most excited about God when they're involved in confrontation and winning battles. The caregivers who, who love to love God by loving others. And the enthusiasts, you have the intellectuals and the enthusiasts. The intellectuals are celebrating. The, the intellectuals are studying. The enthusiasts are celebrating. And while I think the fourfold thing of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is, is an invitation for every Christian. We need to be in the word. We need to pray. We need to worship. We need to serve. But how we pray, whether it's with a group of people, whether it's by the woods, whether it's alone in a cathedral, whether it's alone in a room where there's nothing to distract us, how we read scripture in a Bible study with others, with commentaries and concordances, listening to the Bible on the way to work, all of those things, there's tremendous freedom in scripture. Mm. The Old Testament laid out elaborate rituals and instructions for this is how you worship. And then you ring this bell and then you kill this animal and you put this puff of smoke. And then you, in the New Testament, there's none of that. Worship in the spirit, there's tremendous freedom. Now we only want to worship the one God. And there's certainly certain kinds of worship that wouldn't be appropriate. But there are such a broad view of how through the centuries and scripturally we can worship and spend time with the Lord. And the book is just there to help people find freedom. That if you're having time building consistent devotions with the Lord, you may be trying to follow somebody else's pathway. Right. And God has created you. And I believe you worship God most when you worship him according to the way he designed you. Yeah. Well, you know, I think of the idea of the scriptures that so often say early in the morning, Jesus would sneak away and yeah. go and pray in a lonely place or in the wilderness. And I just, you know, I, I think for me personally, just the weight of the guilt of like, I'm not going to get up early in the morning and go away somewhere into the forest and pray. It's just never uh, going to be my natural um, inclination. And so you can feel all this religious guilt if it doesn't fit into this particular model or box. And, and, and you know, Gary, what I find so freeing about the idea of spiritual pathways is to identify even, the, you know, the way your mentor did it, the way your pastor did it, even some of the ways it's described in scripture, they're not all for, they're yeah. not all, maybe they are all available to you, but all of them aren't your most natural um, mode. Yeah. And so sometimes <laughs> you're just fighting upstream because it wasn't how you were built. I, I've got a funny story about this um, because I'm that morning person. 
I would get up okay. early. I'm a morning person. And I quoted Jesus getting up early. I'd quote Christian classics that talked about getting up early. And I fell in love with a woman who was not a morning person. <laughs> and, and we were dating in college. And Lisa was the kind of person who she had an eight o'clock class. She would wake up at 745, brush her teeth and her hair, go to classes. She'd come back to the dorm at noon and they had her. She loves the sun. So she'd go up onto the roof, lay in the sun with their Bible. And she'd call that a quiet time. And in the flirty way college students do it, I said, oh, come on, Lisa, who goes up into the roof at noontime and lays in the sun and calls it a quiet time? Well, she couldn't say anything. Two weeks later, she knocks on my dorm room door. I open it up. She smiles. She goes over to my Bible. And if you look at my Bible, there's um, her initials where she put it, um, LRE, which were her initials before she married me. And it says this, about noon the following day, Peter went up on the roof to pray. <laughs> and I said, that can't possibly be in there. And I, she showed it to me and I was so faithful. Look, I knew she loved God, but she's not a morning person. And it was really one of the right. ways that God began to show me your way isn't the only way. My way mm. may be the best way for me. It doesn't make it the best way for her. I knew she had a dynamic relationship with the Lord. I wouldn't have wanted to marry her if she didn't. And so... I was the least likely person to write sacred pathways. I tend to be more of a legalist. This is a way to do it. God really opened my eyes in a lot of different ways. But that was one of the funnest ones when uh, she just totally faced me. <laughs> well, and, and, and Gary, I do think that it's what we're describing in sacred pathways is where we started the conversation. This idea that there are ways to access God, a way of knowing God and our spiritual connection with the Lord and with other believers, that it may not look the same for everyone. And that doesn't mean it's wrong, that we can take, um, you know, we can take what's best. There's that expression, is it like, you know, chew the marrow and spit out the bones or yes. whatever that expression is. Okay. Yes. I, I've read the Bible more times than I can count. As I started reading the Bible when I was eight years old and I'm 60. There isn't a single verse in the Bible that says to pray, you must close your eyes and bow your head. And that's how we teach most people to pray. Now, if you're distracted easily, that might be a very effective form of prayer. For a sensate, a naturalist, an enthusiast, it might be the worst form of prayer for you. And so just recognize this is who you are. Embrace it. Don't judge others. And just because it's meaningful to you, share it with enthusiasm. It may not be as meaningful to others. Right. Oh, Gary, thank you so much. If people want to find more of you, your prolific writing, so many books, you care so much about not just our relationship with God, but also how it plays out in our relationship with one another, in our marriages, our friendships, our churches. Um, where where do people find you? Where do you want to send them yeah. on the internet? Well, where I'm interacting most these days is on Substack, and that's GaryThomasBooks.substack.com. It's just offering an opportunity where I can post some video and where I can interact. So that's GaryThomasBooks.substack.com. And I have some weekly columns there and whatnot, more than that for some subscribers. But then my website, if they just want a list of the books and the links to social media, is GaryThomas.com. So if they can remember my name, GaryThomas, put a .com on there, and they'll be able to it. find out about me. Thanks so much, Gary. Thank you, Joanna. Gary Thomas, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. 
with you today. Next week on the podcast, we have Kayla Stockling. Maybe her name is familiar. She made headlines and her family made headlines a few years ago because her mega church pastor husband, Andrew Stockline, he really tragically died by suicide after a long struggle with mental health. So you can learn about how she's rebuilding her life and their family into something really beautiful when life absolutely did not go as they expected. Thank you so much to our sponsors on this episode, Compassion Canada, lifting children from poverty in Jesus' name. This new podcast by the Canadian Bible Society, Scripture Untangled, and Serve HQ. Train your ministry volunteers, leaders, and new members online fast and easy with Serve HQ. The links to this are down in the show notes. The links to our YouTube channel, our tutorials, our back catalog of podcasts. We're trying to resource you every way that we can. So please do check out the link in the show notes for more information on this and how we can be in touch week to week in the Digital Church Facebook group. See you next week.